Hey, good morning, everyone. This is the last in our four-week series that we entitled The Treasure Principle. And that means that at about 12.30 today, the giant treasure box on the stage all gets folded up and collapsed. And that means at 12.30 today, if you're keen on it, you can come and grab some treasure. Because we established last week, this is actually chocolate, and it might be worth your time. Yeah. But the reason this gets collapsed so quickly is because later this afternoon, we need to uncover the baptistry underneath it to be able to celebrate with people who have given their life afresh to Jesus. And really a reminder that uh, that's, that's really the heart of it, isn't it? It's all about transformation. Even this series of teachings on the managing of finances and the place of stuff in our lives that's just a means towards an end. And the end is the transformation of the character of those who have given their life to Christ. And, and so I'm, I'm just delighted that that gets to happen today. One of the most famous statements that's ever been made about money and stuff came from Jesus himself, who said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That has been the theme of the series over these past four weeks, Matthew 6, verse 21. And following on that, one of the great questions of life has to be, what is it that you treasure the most? And how is it that we know the things that we treasure the most? It turns out that a lot of the times, asking somebody that's that's probably not the best way to get an answer to the question. One of the ways you can find out, actually, is to look at what people go absolutely crazy about when it gets threatened. Right? So there's a downturn in the market, and your portfolio plummets a little bit. That's going to make some people a lot more nuts than others. Right? Um, what are some other opportunities to test this out? Well, hey... You ever come out to the parking lot and see a nice, long, brilliant scratch right down the passenger side door of your car? That's going to affect some people a whole lot more deeply than others, depending on what they treasure. Uh, about this time a couple of years ago, I'm, I'm not a car guy, I should say that. Um, cars are just, I don't know, they're like, uh, we get that they're necessary in the GTA, but I never feel like you own them. They just own you, and every once in a while they come for another little piece of you, but uh, after after holding on to a vehicle for about 14 years, just shy of 400,000 kilometers, we finally decided we had to give it up, and we got into a new Hyundai, and I hadn't had it too very long when we were out at a Christians Against Poverty banquet on a Friday night, and I had some people from the church in the car with me, and we were in the, the passenger, we were in the queue to get into the parking lot, and the car in front of us, for whatever reason, backed up, and... Bang, crunch. Now, if you had to be hit by somebody in a traffic collision, I got hit by the nicest lady in the world. She was just, she was so fantastic. And I, we talked dozens and dozens of times over the months leading up to the repair of our cars and the months following. And we're still in touch. I mean, she was absolutely fantastic. And she arranged for me to take my vehicle to her favorite mechanic. And I sat up there with the mechanic and said, well, we need to do this and this and this. And I said, well, she's such a nice lady. You're sure we need to do all of that? Cause she was going to pay out of pockets. And this is what he said. He said, listen, this is a new vehicle. And, uh, it's only one scratch away from being junk. And so we want to put it back together just as it was. And I started thinking about it. Is that really true? Is it really only one scratch away from being junk? 
Jesus had this really interesting thought about treasure and about stuff. He said, don't let your heart serve your treasure, but let your treasure serve your heart. Be careful what it is that you treasure, because wherever that is, somehow your heart is going to wind up there. But you can use your treasure in order to help save and restore and redeem your heart. This morning, I'm going to read two texts with you. They're both kind of missional texts. They both have profound implications for what you're going to do with your stuff and your life. And I need to say, I'm way off script here because neither one of them are coming from the Treasure Principle book and neither one of them are going to be in your study guide this week if you're meeting weekly in one of our small groups that's doing the series. But but there's such key texts. The first one comes from the book of Revelation in chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn there. Revelation chapter 3. These are a series of letters that are written to the to the early church in different cities around the ancient world. This one is addressed to the church in Philadelphia. And it says in chapter 3, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these words. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. I want you to hold on to that, particularly that image. I have placed before you an open door. Dr. Jerry Hawthorne, one of the... uh, really keen theological minds of our generation, talks about what a really fabulous image that is, the the image of an open door. He says, you know, a door can mean security, it can mean privacy, it can mean safety, but he says in this passage, it means none of those things. Rather, he says, an open door is symbolic of boundless opportunities, of unlimited chances to do something worthwhile, of grand openings into the new and unknown adventure of significant living, of heretofore unimagined chances to do good and to make our lives count for eternity. An open door. I mean, it's what we live for, isn't it? The great adventure of life. So that's one of the two texts, kind of a missional text. God says, I have placed before you an open door. And knowing what it is, is knowing why you're here on earth. And I'm going to talk to you this morning a little bit about that image and, and try and draw out some of, the, some of the significances and the opportunities and the convictions that come with the language of the open door. And here's the very first one. Our God, as it turns out, Our God is a God of open doors. Open doors come to you and to me, not because of our cleverness or or our giftedness or our boldness or our strength. Open doors always come as a gift of grace. Now I'm going to give you the second text as a way of illustrating it. See if you can spot the translation, because it's not going to be a familiar one to you. But this is the story of God in Abraham. Pastor Sheldon dealt with it just a little bit, the aftermath last week. But here's the initial story. God comes to Abraham out of the blue one day, and this is what he said. Again, listen for the translation. Congratulations. 
Today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. Abraham said, where are these places you want me to go? When will I get there? How will I know? Will I need a design? Will I need a degree? Will I need other things that you're hiding from me? Where is the map for your plan for my life? I must know all this stuff. I must talk to my wife. Anybody got the translation yet? Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, right? In the style of, right? And God says, no, that would take all the fun, the adventure, the mystery of faith out of it. His first command, as it turns out to Abraham, is simply this. Go. Go to the places that I'm going to show you. Go means you're going to have to trust me. Go means you're going to have to leave behind your comfort zone. It might mean you have to leave behind some of your stuff. Because this project, which, by the way, begins with you now, is going to involve the whole world. I'm concerned about all of humanity. So you don't just get to stay where you are. You can't stay here. You have to go there. Our God is a God who loves to give the human beings, including you and me, these open doors. You need to go. And then God tells Abraham why he wants him to go. And this leads to a second conviction about this image of the open door. It's, a, it's really a single word. It's the word bless. He says, I want you to go and bless. We've been talking for the past three weeks about giving and about storing up treasures, not so much for ourselves down here when it's all only one scratch away from being junk anyway, but storing them up in heaven. But, but here's where I feel like, like maybe we could have a bit of a miscue if we're not careful. Storing up treasures for ourselves, whether it's here or there in eternity, it, it can sound a little bit self-indulgent, can it? And that really isn't the key idea behind Jesus' challenge to to store up our treasures in places that matter, nor is it consistent with the Scripture's vision of who God wants us to be. Instead, investing our treasures, investing them in people and causes that make a tangible difference in God's world, investing them in things that will nudge the kingdom of God just one step closer in our generation or in somebody's life, That's always been God's great design for human beings. And it reaches all the way back to the beginning, to Abraham. He says, go and bless. In fact, he says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you incredibly so that you can be a blessing. Giving and generosity, they're, they're an open door to the mind of God. And they're... They're an open door to understanding God's design for the world. An open door is never just about me. So God says to Abraham, I will bless you. But that blessing isn't for yours to keep, yours to hoard. It's yours to give out. And this isn't about your status or your security or your stuff or your ego. You're blessed in order to be a blessing. And it's going to happen, he says to Abraham, on a scale that you can't even begin to imagine. So imagine this, God says to this one man, this nomad, Abraham, I will bless you and all the nations of the earth are going to get blessed through you. And you know that? That description is repeated over and over and over again in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. It's kind of a mission statement. It becomes the mission statement for Israel, for Abraham. 
It's the same for you and I. It's the great commission really dressed up in different language. Our mission, our call to go and to bless. Now, I mean, that word bless, it really is quite a simple thing. And it's not just a polite formality after somebody sneezes, right? God bless you. The word bless means simply to, to enhance life, to add life. Blessing is what God does. The first time we see the word bless in the Bible, again, way back in Genesis, we're told that God created everything, but the first time the word appears here is in verse 22. It says he created the creatures of the sea, every living, moving thing with which the water teems, and God blessed it all. And God said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas. I love this picture. I mean, here's God making and then blessing Fish, of all things, for crying out loud, fish. How many fish did God make? Who knows? One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. (laughs) Not one of them is like another. I don't know why. Go ask your mother. We love Dr. Seuss in our house, I have to admit. And he made them all, and he creates human beings, and we're told that God blessed them. He said, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge. Be responsible for all those fish in the sea and the birds in the air and every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. So God makes a man and he makes a woman. And he says, I set before you an open door. Unlimited chances to do something worthwhile in your time on this planet. God blesses human beings and tells them they are blessed in order to be a blessing to the earth. That's an open door life. And God sets it before us, an open door. It's, it's a life with a mission. Whose mission is it? It's God's. What's the mission? To bless. Where? Wherever you go. When? Congratulations. <laughs> Today is your day. Right? And maybe people will say, but you know what? I don't have that much, or I don't know that much. I'm not articulate. I'm not wealthy. I'm not trained. Folks, it's as simple as Dr. Seuss. You just go bless. What has God given you? What's the open door? It's there right in front of you. It leads kind of to another conviction, if you'd like, about this image of the open door. Open doors are about opportunities, but they're not guarantees. Now, that's hard. Right? Because we get confused. We get actually really twisted up about this, especially in the church. What should I do with my life? People wonder, what door should I take? Door number one, door number two. Please tell me, God. We obsess over it and we pray, God, tell me exactly. Write it down. Write it on the wall. Tell me what to do with my life. I don't care what it is. Just tell me. And sometimes we get no answers and we're frustrated. And we assume that either we're praying wrong Or somehow God is doing something wrong because it's just not happening. If I'm honest, I have to say it took me years and years and years to come to grips with this. And a man who helped me immensely with understanding how God tends to work in human beings, a man named Dallas Willard said this, and it's, it's just stuck like glue in my mind. He said, God is more concerned with the person that I become than the circumstances that I inhabit. 
God is more concerned with the person you become than the circumstances you inhabit. In fact, that's really what the treasure principle is all about. Generosity and giving and what we do with our stuff and our bank balance is more about the person that you become than what you do with the things you've accumulated, whether here on earth or off in eternity. Giving in this generation particularly, consumerism and materialism, giving is one of God's most powerful tools to shape character. And I know we like to say things, and we've said them in this series, and I've said them, things, things like you can't take it with you. And, and Sheldon's beautiful image last week, that you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? But actually, you do get to take something with you. What you take with you is you. And it turns out that the most important thing that God gets out of your life is the person that you become. That's also the most important thing you get out of your life. God is more concerned about the person I become than the circumstances I inhabit. And that means that the primary goal that God must have for my life as I journey in Christ is that I learn to be a person of great judgment and deep character. And folks, in this generation, you realize that that's going to have serious implications for how we manage our money and our stuff. Good decision-making, especially good financial decision-making, is an indispensable part of character formation, especially now, where the temptations are so vast and there's so many rabbit holes that people have fallen down into. Treasure principle key number five. Remember, we've been dealing with a couple of these every week. We've got the last two this morning, but number five. Giving is the antidote to materialism. Giving is joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. Why? Because it dethrones me and it enthrones him. It just gets things right. You'll have a chance to unpack that this week in your small groups. Now, the Bible actually does begin to venture in the, into the area of offering, offering some very practical wisdom or advice that we can use to check ourselves in this area, financial decision-making, to see whether our understanding of, of giving and stuff is even in the ballpark of what God had in mind. Now, this isn't the only way, but it's one way that the Bible gives to test yourself. It starts with a standard that's held up first in the Old Testament. The standard is called the tithe. The tithe means simply a tenth, 10%. And it's very clear in the Old Testament, at least, that People of God understood that, that a tenth of everything that came into their household, all their livestock, all the, all the produce from their fields, a tenth of that was used in order to enable works of charity, charity and mission, the kingdom work, kingdom building work of God's people. And that's raised the question ever since for God's New Testament people, does that still hold? I mean, what was true for them back then, is that true after Jesus for the for the people now who have this entire new revelation of God. So I want to say a word or two about it, because I've, I've gotten email through the course of the series saying, when are you going to teach on tithing? Here it is. The only place in the New Testament that the language of tithing is mentioned or dealt with is in the Gospel of Luke. If you're curious, you can have a look. It's in Luke 11, in verse 42. Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because 
You give God a tenth, a tithe, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Would that you had practiced the latter without leaving behind the former. You see what he said? First of all, he says, you know what? The the tithing, that's a good thing. You don't need to leave that behind. But get your heart right. Because tithing, if it's not a heart-level conviction, does nothing to reshape or reform character. The trouble with you Pharisees is sometimes there are real needs in the community. And there's a need out there that love or justice demands that you meet, but you have this limit, this legalistic language. You think, as long as I've checked that box beside the word tithing, everything else is up to me. You're legalist, Jesus said. You're not being run by love and justice, but just by this really circumscribed code of conduct. That's That's a significant statement Jesus is making. And then in the rest of the New Testament, tithing is never mentioned. So what does that mean? Here's what it means, I think. Don't get hung up on the number. But absolutely get hung up on the principle. What the tithe was asking of God's people is that they think about God's place in their life first. And instead of asking how much I should give, Jesus actually flips things around and asks us to consider how much do we really need to keep. And so the people who get hung up on the the tithe, incidentally, the people that get most upset that the church doesn't teach strict tithing are usually those who are tithing and resent the fact that other people aren't. You see the little bits of legalism that creep in there? But... Do you really think that God would say to his New Testament people who enjoyed greater blessing and greater privilege that they should give less generously or less enthusiastically than their Old Testament predecessors? That doesn't make any sense. But rather than setting out some legalistic formula that prescribes and limits giving, think of it just as a baseline, a way of saying, am I even in the ballpark? And then see where God takes you. The open door. There are no guarantees that an open door takes you to an easy place. That's another conviction, right? When you're thinking about giving or serving or sacrificing or moving out in a new way, uh, going through that open door doesn't mean life gets to be easy on the other side. In fact, it's really interesting. Where in the world does the Bible ever record God saying to somebody, I want you to go, I've got an easy little job for you. When does God say, I set before you an open door, and by the way, it's not going to inconvenience you much, it won't cost you much, it won't interfere at all with your lifestyle. There's a group of people who've done a lot of thinking and teaching in the area of generosity. Um, They maintain a website, and they do a, um, a lot of sort of seminars and workshops all around North America. And they've lobbied hard to get this in front of not just the church, but but the general public. And they coined this acronym. They call it the LOG, L-O-G, the Lifestyle of Generosity, the Antidote to Materialism. It turns out, though, as they began to float this, that that idea and, and the way that they played it out was scary for people. And so they began to scale it down a little bit. Instead, they wound up with a day of generosity. Dog, right? Or, or the hour of generosity. Yeah, hog. Or about this one, seven minutes of generosity, smog. 
But there's all kinds of ways that you can lower it. Realize that God has never gone to anyone and say, I want you to go, it's going to be easy. What he says is, go, and I will go with you. And, you know, people will actually go, refuse to go through some open door, some opportunity, an opportunity for generosity or giving or working or serving. They refuse to go through the adventure of obedience to God. It happens in the church all the time based on this criteria. I just don't feel at peace about it because I know that God would give me a great sense of settled peace if this were meant for me. When in the Bible... Does God tell Moses to face down Pharaoh? Does he ask David to face the monster Goliath or Daniel to step into the lion's den or Esther to stand in the face of a homicidal maniac like Naaman and have one of them say, hey, I just don't feel at peace about that, Lord. Peace lies on the other side of obedience. And by the way, if you've ever done this, if you've ever gone through one of these open-door opportunities, you've given sacrificially, and actually it ended up costing you more than you knew it would, and maybe you're discouraged, I want you to know that you're not alone. You're not the first person in the kingdom of God to face a difficult assignment, and your story is not done yet. I look at this room, the grace, the the gifts that are represented here, the open doors that some of you have already gone through, the ones that lie ahead of us, it's really kind of staggering to think about it. The joy that we get to do this part of our journey together. And some of you have been at it a long time. One other little piece of feedback we've heard through the course of the series comes from those of you who've been at it a long time. And you're wondering what's left. I mean, is, is there any purpose left in me or for me? Have I got anything left to give? Can I give you a word? Uh, I heard it first from a pastor named Craig Greshel, pastor's life church based in Oklahoma City. This is what he says. If you're not dead, you're not done. <laughs> if you're still on the planet, If you're still sucking air and your heart is still beating, God has something for you to do. If you're not dead, you're not done. Abraham tried to say, no, Lord, I'm too old. Timothy said, no, Lord, I'm too young. Esther said, no, Lord, I'm the wrong gender. Moses said, no, I've got the wrong gifts. Gideon said, no, I'm from the wrong tribe. Elijah tried to say, no, because I've got the wrong enemies. If you're not dead, you're not done. There's this guy I remember reading way back in university in psychology. His name was Abraham Maslow. Maslow wrote an awful lot about the human condition, but he coined uh, an expression to describe part of the human condition. He called it the Jonah complex. Jonah is probably the most famous no-sayer in the Bible, right? God opens up a door for him. He runs wildly in the other direction, The Jonah complex, Maslow said, this is something he found over and over again in his practice with people. It's a strange tendency, he said, that people have to evade their calling, to resist their destiny, the refusal to give the gift that they were born to give. Because, you see, everybody is born to give something. The God of the universe is a God who loves to give. And if we're made just a little bit like him, doesn't it follow 
that we were made to give? Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's so interesting. He doesn't say that God likes it more. He doesn't say that we're more obligated to do it. He said, you're blessed. This is the good life. It's more blessed. It's better. It's more joyful. It's more fruitful. It's more honorable. So here maybe is a question for you, uh, something for you to talk about in your small groups this week. What's the open door that God has placed in front of you right now? Where has God set before you an opportunity to make your life count? To be something more or to invest in something more, to give something more. And please tell me it's about something more than just a car that's only one scratch away from being junk. The last of the keys in the treasure principle is this. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. Here's the deal. The secret of life, it turns out, is not security. It's not accumulation. It's not status. It's not ego. It's just not stuff. All those things are just on their way to becoming an ash heap. The main thing that God gets out of your life is the person you become. And the way you become that person is by asking God, whatever open door that you and I can go through together, I'm willing to risk it. This is what Jesus knew. This is what Jesus did. He made his life an adventure in unlimited chances to do good. And they killed him for it. So let's not pretend it's supposed to be easy. They killed him. They laid his body in a tomb three days after he was crucified. But on that morning, three days later, Father says to the Son, See, I'm going to set before you an open door. The stone is rolled away and Jesus comes out. And the response of of those who saw him first, interesting, two words are used to describe them. They were filled with awe and they were filled with joy. The Gospels end with that moment where Jesus meets his friends for the last time on earth. And this is what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go. Bless. Make disciples of all the nations. Congratulations. Today is your day. You'll travel the world. You'll stand before kings. Some of you will have absolutely no money, and yet you'll be outrageously happy. You'll be locked up in prison, and yet you'll sing songs for God's sake. You'll be beaten for the faith and count yourself honored to have suffered in his name. So go. Bless. Feed the hungry, house the homeless, free the oppressed, heal the sick, love the forgotten, and I'll be with you. And one day I'll come back and we're going to set everything right. But between this day and that day, oh, the places that you'll go and the things that God will do with the generosity of your lives. I'm going to wrap all this up now with a 
a chance to just sit before God in prayer for a few minutes and think about what it might look like to do a little bit of heavenward investing right now. Inside your bulletins this morning, you should have received a, a little white card. It looks something like this. On one side are the, the six or seven keys, the treasure principle there. But on the back, you see where it says, my giving covenant? I want to give you a few quiet moments to sit before God. And as you read through those statements, not just to read them, but to, but to pray them. As you're praying them, be thinking about, about how God might open something up in you and for you in the next season of your life. And then a chance to signal your readiness to go with God where he leads on the great adventure of giving. And after you've had a chance to do that, and, and if you've felt sort of the nudge and the prompting of God, we're going to ask you to sign that and date it with today's date and then put it in your Bible. Use it as a bookmark. Put it in a place where you're going to run across it frequently in the coming months and the years ahead. Make it one of those things, a stake that you place in the earth at a, at a phase in your life, a signpost that signals the way forward. Make it one of those moments where we signal to God that, that we understand really what lasting treasure is meant to be. I'm going to do that for a couple of minutes, and then we'll wrap things up in prayer, and then we'll join together here at the table.